Welcome to The Room, where we talk about the hard parts of leadership that every great leader goes through, but no one wants to talk about. I'm Jenny Dufresne, host of The Room podcast and CEO of Leaders Transform, a business growth training firm. I am a global leader, former United States Marine, international best-selling author, community, and business leader. The Room is your safe space. We'll talk about the things that are difficult for leaders, the tough stuff that leaders aren't willing to be vulnerable about, but we really need to. So come on in, close the door, join me in the room. I know leaders and I know leadership. Welcome back to the room where leaders talk about the things that need to be talked about. I am extraordinarily excited today to welcome Minette Norman to the show. Uh, She has really a fantastic career that I'm excited to share with each and every one of you who's listening because I think that her journey is going to be a journey both of in my opinion, some mentorship and some way showing and trailblazing really that can be beneficial to all of us, uh, even in today's context in 2023. So Manette is a former Silicon Valley executive um, and along her path after 30 years or in her 30 year path in the software industry, she started to recognize a need for a new model of leadership. And she's recently written her second book. Um, It's called The Boldly Inclusive Leader, which I'm excited for us to delve into. And she really emphasizes the importance of cultivating inclusive teams. And we've heard a lot about inclusivity, so we're going to talk about that. And also fostering a psychologically psychologically safe environment. So that that was her first book, which was co-authored, and it's entitled Psychological Safety Playbook. And so from this extensive experience that she's had of leading diverse global teams, um, her recent book really focuses on practical advice on how to create an inclusive culture, uh, how to embrace diverse perspectives, and how to really create an environment where people feel like they truly belong and it's not just lip service. So with that, um, Minette, I'm so excited. Thank you so much for for uh, coming on the the show. Uh, And so just as we get started here, so right before we started, I I thought, you know what? What does 30 years in the software industry look like as a woman? And I quickly Googled to learn that we are at about 27% of women in in the tech, of women are in the tech industry. But in the early 2000s, I couldn't find anything that went back to maybe the 90s. But in the early 2000s, it was about 9% of women. So I'd like to drop you into the, I guess, early 90s when you started in the tech, in the tech sector. I actually got right. my first job in tech in 1989. So oh, 89. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Okay. So, uh, so, okay. So 89, what was it like? you know, walking into to, to the work environment every day in, in 1989? It's really interesting that you asked that question. I have been asked that question before, and people say it must have been, you know, even worse then for women, and there were so few. So mm-hmm. I didn't have those stats. Actually, that's so interesting that it was so low. But here was my story. So I walked in in 1989 to Adobe. That was my first job mm-hmm. in tech. It was when they were developing Photoshop 1.0. And I was, yeah, like that's really ancient history (laughs) of Silicon Valley. I was hired to write the tutorial for the first version of Photoshop. And it's very interesting because I wasn't aware 
of the low numbers of women at all because I worked in a, a group that was both the writing and also the marketing and the creative, like a lot of designers that I worked with were women. So it didn't strike me then that there's this big imbalance. Now, I also worked with a lot of engineers because I would have to talk to the engineers to understand what I was writing right. about. And there, I remember only one woman that I worked with, with all the male engineers. So probably those numbers, like in the, in the single digits, right. that was true, but it wasn't true across the company because we had lots of women in other functions. So maybe it wasn't so obvious unless you were sitting as that only woman in engineering. Interesting. So, and that's actually fascinating. I think also how... Uh, and I think this is a, an area of the tech industry, the, the tech sector that people are continuing to try to really um, break through, which is around the maybe more technical or the engineering jobs. We hear a lot about, you know, making sure we have girls and young women going into STEM so that they're they're able to get, you know, they're able to move into those those tech, those engineering jobs, which I think is actually something very interesting also about in creating inclusive environments, which we'll talk about. So 1989, you you're you you do not see kind of what we described really and highlight as some disparities. And but as you move through Adobe, because I know from there you I believe went to a couple of other companies and you also begin to progress in your leadership roles. So as that happened, what what did you notice? What did you see? Um, and how did you how did you how were you able to start to develop yourself as a leader? Like, you know, what were the models, role models? What were you looking at? What I saw was certainly that and even back. So I should go back to Adobe for a moment. When we looked at senior leadership, it was all men. And at every company I went to after that, I moved from, let's see if I can remember it all. I went from Adobe to EFI to a startup that didn't make it to Symantec and then Autodesk. So five companies in about 10 years. Um, and they were all led by men. And I, at that time, there was, I don't even think there were women in the C-suite. So certainly mm -hmm. that's what we saw as role models and mostly white men. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I saw. And then I started to get into leadership roles about 10, year in, 10 years into my career. So I spent like 10 years as an individual contributor and 20 years in leadership. And it's so interesting you ask about role models because I have to admit there was never a single role model for me. What I saw really was there were leaders and managers that I had along the way where I saw something good in what they did. And I'm like, that's something really interesting. I would, I would definitely want to do that if I were managing teams. And I also saw a lot of really awful behavior that I saw as like cautionary tales of how I don't want to show up as a leader. And so it was this balance of, I guess, an amalgam of, of good leadership traits, bad leadership traits. And I felt like I really had to forge my own path to figure out who I, Manette Norman, wanted to be as a leader of teams. And I could only show up. I mean, I really felt it so important that I show up as myself, that I show up honestly and as authentically as possible, and that I really, truly connect with the people that I'm managing, which I didn't see happen a lot. A lot of the time, it was like we were just numbers or, you know, head count, the sort mm -hmm. of proverbial head count, as opposed to really individuals who were all different. And I felt that the only way I could be a good leader is to get to know the people that I was managing, understand their strengths and their weaknesses, their differences, so I could be the best leader I could be. And I think that's how I started to forge my path and eventually find my voice as a more senior leader. And that that took a while. 
So I, I love your, your unpacking of that. And then I, I of course, want to unpack it even more. <laughs> so the wherewithal, the internal understanding, the, the I mean, if we talk about emotional intelligence or we talk about, um, you know, a level of self-awareness, for you to have recognized, I mean, we can recognize, you know, crappy leadership and at least I feel good around this person leadership, right? Right. Yes. You may not be able yes. to put it in a box and give it a label. But how did... And again, I'm going to go back to as a woman, because we have often all kinds of societal constraints around owning our own voice, around owning our own space, around creating the space that we need to be who we are, who we need to be. So at, I guess, 10 years in or what have you in your career, how, like what what were the things internal to you or your background that gave you the tenacity to, to start to say with authority internally, like, this is, this is how I'm going to shape this journey? So I don't, and the reason I say that is that I don't think we often dig into that for leaders. Like, there's something, either something happens or it's the values that I was raised with or what have you. What was that for you? It's a really, it's a deep question because I have of to course. think about it. And I appreciate <laughs> deep questions, Jenny. I like these questions, but it does make me have to think. You know, part of it was, honestly, when I was first a manager, I think what happened was I was reporting to a woman who was a really warm and empathetic person. And she, so I really liked her and I felt good around her. And at the same time, I felt she did not stand up for us. And she, what I witnessed, so she was one of my first kind of role models, you might say, she definitely liked to stay under the radar. And I remember her saying, like, we're not going to ask for headcount. We're not going to ask for budget. We're going to make sure, like, we just don't cause any waves. And there was something about that that I viscerally reacted to, like, that's not how I want to be. I mean, if I am leading a team of people, I need to speak the truth. And we we actually had to, like, not tell the truth under her because she right. didn't want to show her leadership that maybe we had some spare cycles. No, no, we had to be fully allocated. So mm -hmm. I saw that and I reacted like, and I remember this may be something from my childhood. I had a very outspoken grandmother and my grandmother would always say, you have to, she had this Yiddish accent. She's from Eastern Europe, Jew um, from Eastern Europe. They fled the pogroms and she felt you had to speak up. And she said, she always said, somebody's got to tell them. And I had that voice in my head my whole life. Like we have to speak up for what's right and what's true. And so when I saw this manager of mine, who I really liked, be what I would consider fairly weak, like I need to not be that way. And so I started to push back and then I took on different roles after that. And I realized I need, first of all, to speak up on behalf of my team. And I need to sometimes challenge the status quo, which I didn't see happening. And I felt like you know, it did take me, I would say it took me probably another five years to get better at that because it's very scary to do. And it's much Absolutely. easier. One of the things that I write about and I've learned so much about is that it's so much easier to just conform to the group norms and not to ever push back. And yet that's what we really need to be doing. And especially, well, you know, before we recorded, we were talking about how we as women have made progress in business 
but not enough. And when we look at the numbers of, of women in, in tech fields, it's still under 30%. Like that's too slow since 1989 or 1990s, whenever. And I feel like we must keep challenging the status quo. We must keep speaking up and not accepting that this is okay. I think, so thank you for that because I, because there's a, it, it's interesting, a, a couple of um, days ago, I was speaking to someone and we kind of got into that and it was actually a recording of another podcast, which will come out soon. And similarly, and she said it was, you know, the women in my family were women who did fill in the blank, right? And she specifically was talking about the ancestors in her family who were people who did you know, and I and the reason I bring that up is that I think as leaders, as as you know, as our wallets grow when we get promoted, and the fear starts to set in of you know the mortgages and the car payments that we forget sometimes, or we start, as you said, conforming to this the safety, the safety of of conformity. We, 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 and we jettison those things that I think are really important to your point. Um, and I love, thank you for bringing your grandmother's voice into the conversation, because I think that is, we, we do need to recognize, remember there are people who, who blaze trails so that we all could sit and do the things that we, we do. So thank you for that. Yeah, exactly. So, but, and, the, and so this, this brings to, to mind the, there is an internal chatter that every leader every leader has. And that usually is the chatter of be quiet or, well, we'll just wait and see what happens, but we'll sit over here. So how would you mentor or guide, um, let's say a woman leader, your, your former, your previous manager, how would you, what would you say to that person? What would you, what would you, offer them to do or encourage them to do to be able to start to silence that chatter and figure out how to, how to make things happen. Yeah. It's uh, so much of it is, is what we say to ourselves, right. And and that chatter (laughs) is so powerful. The inner critic is so powerful. We doubt ourselves. Uh, You know, sometimes when I, and I did a lot of mentoring in my career, that was one of the things that I really loved is just offering myself up as a mentor. And so I certainly had a lot of those conversations. And one of the places I like to start is just to ask the question of what if, you know, there's a, what if is a very powerful question. What if you, and it doesn't have to be the scariest thing you've ever considered, but what if you had a conversation with your manager in which you said, you know, I don't feel like I can actually tell you exactly what's going on with my team, but I would love to be able to do so without repercussions. What if you had that conversation? What if you took that first step? And then to even talk through all the things that could go wrong, because that's what we do in our heads, right? We catastrophize everything. And then what? And then what? And asking those follow-up questions. And often it's so much worse in our head. We imagine it to be so much worse. Like, what's the worst thing that could happen? You're going to lose your job? No. Are you going to get marginalized? Possibly. But if you do this in a very skillful way that it seems like you're actually trying to help your manager do better, 
you're probably not going to be marginalized. You're probably going to be thanked if you do this in a skillful way. So to actually practice having some of these courageous and difficult conversations in a safe place with a mentor, with a, with a colleague you trust. I always encourage people to talk these things through and not just in our heads because in our heads, yeah. they're always terrible scenarios. Right. Yeah, it's the worst. It's the volcanic. It's, it's exactly. the foremost horrible. Earthquakes, volcanoes, everything happens. Exactly. So I love, I love that. So practicing... Uh, with a mentor or a trusted advisor to practice those difficult conversations, particularly when you know as a leader that you're silencing yourself and it's detrimental to your team or to the mission or to advancing whatever is in your purview of responsibility. So I really, I appreciate that. So when when those conversations, and I think just before we came on, you, you had shared uh, a little bit well, you kind of gave a little teaser about your experience of, you know, moving through the ranks of leadership in uh, in the software industry and and then it ending. Yeah. So what, if you'd like to share a little bit of, you know, whatever that, that you'd like to share that could be illuminating to this conversation? I'm happy to share it. And I feel like I've just started actually telling the real story of what happened in my career because I think it's important. And I also know that my story is not unique. It's just one of many. So the last five years of my professional career in the software industry, I was VP of engineering and it was a huge job. And I basically started, I had, I had gotten to like a senior director level. I was leading localization, which was a department of about a hundred people. And we were managing all the international versions of our products, getting them ready for international markets, whether translated or adapted. And I made a really big, uh, I did a transformation of that team that got recognition within the company. And so I suddenly had some pretty good visibility as a leader in the company. The C staff got to know me. And then uh, my manager was the VP of engineering. And he told me one day he was leaving that job. He was taking another job in the company. So I applied for that job. And what was really interesting is the SVP, who was on the C staff, who interviewed me for the job, he knew me because I was in his, his organization. He knew my reputation. And he said to me, you know, Manette, I, I know you're a good leader. I know you're well-respected. I know you can lead change, which is what I'm looking for. But you have a few strikes against you. And the first is that you were never an engineer. And this is leading engineering. So the question is, can you get traction with the engineering community? And the second is that it's a boys club. And that like all the engineering leaders in the company at that time were men. And he said, I want to make sure that, you know, people are going to embrace you as the leader. So he gave me a 90 day trial in that job, which I didn't really want, but I, I pushed through it. I got the job. I had the job for five years. And in that time, I felt like I was at the gradually over those five years at the peak of my career of my power of finding my voice because my job was to transform engineering and really modernize and get us on common tools and technologies but it was more about changing the culture yeah. and that's when I really found my voice and started to talk about diversity equity and inclusion empathy psychological safety collaboration all the things that engineering had never ever talked about and I loved that role and people seemed to really like me in that role. And we got a lot done in that time. My team and I got a lot done. 
And then there was a leadership change. And this is, I think, what's really important that I see now in hindsight with such clarity that I didn't see at the time. So maybe for your listeners <laughs> is this lesson that that person, that SVP, his name was Amar, who put me in the role. He left the company when there was a CEO change. And what I didn't realize is I was unprotected then. He was mm. my executive sponsor. And he, and I was also very much associated with him. And when he was gone, I think my days were numbered, but I didn't see it right away. And they brought in new leadership. I was actually bumped down a level. So I was a VP reporting to another VP reporting to an SVP. And then the really sad part of the story, and I won't go into the details of it, but basically I got bullied by my new manager. I was bullied. I was retaliated against. And it was because I was challenging and I was speaking up and I was speaking out and I was probably making him and of the other leaders uncomfortable. I maybe pushed too hard or they were just not, I think they just were not ready for what I was doing. And I know the company's evolved since I left, but I was given the choice of staying and reporting to a bully or leaving. And so I left the industry in 2019. And I have to say it was devastating. It was so devastating because I did feel like I was at the apex of my career. And then suddenly I didn't know what I was going to do. And then the good news is that I figured it out and I figured I'm not going to work for anyone else now and I'm going to go do my own thing and be a consultant and be a speaker and write books and share all that I've learned over the years with other leaders, ideally hoping them do better and create better conditions for others to thrive. So thank you for, for sharing that because I, I know having had a similar um, experience that it and I actually just had it activated yesterday after 10 years. And I realized how much it still lives in my body. Yes, <laughs> it does, and I was right? like, oh, it really lives in our bodies. And I just, I had no idea. Um, but so, and so thank you. Uh, so a couple of things that I heard you say that are very, very important. And I think sometimes women, we forget this because we then hunker down to do the work. Yes. Is that it is always important to have protection. Um, or as we say in the military, top cover, that we top have to cover, have that's top a great cover. Expression, yes. We have to have top cover, right? So be, just for the point that you said, and there's champions and sponsors and mentors at all levels of your organization, uh, because just for the exact reason that you said, more people need to understand the work that we do as leaders. Yeah. Um, and and it is important because at some point everyone does leave yes, <laughs> for exactly. whatever variety of reasons people leave. And so that's a, that's a huge, a huge lesson. And then I think the, the other thing is when that, I, I, I guess it some, sounds like it was a somewhat abrupt transition in terms of, you know, Monday you're doing this and Thursday you're, you're now doing something different. How did you, so you, you, you figured it out. What was that journey? Like, what was the internal work that you had to do as a leader to, I'm going to say, kind of restabilize, recover, revitalize yourself and reimagine who you are now because you are now someone different, different title, different, you're, you're, you know, you have your own shingle now versus somebody else's shingle. So how, what was, what was the like two or three things that you had to do to be able to kind of get yourself righted on that, on that new journey? Those words are, that you just used are, are exactly right. Like rediscover, revitalize. I mean, I was, I was pretty devastated when I left. And so it wasn't like an immediate thing that I knew what I was going to do. I had to, I had to recover to use your word. I had to 
really just kind of take care of myself, be, be quiet and have some space uh, to do nothing. So I definitely took time to just reflect. I am a very social person. So I met with a lot of ex-colleagues and friends to just sanity check. Like, you know, did I imagine I had a successful career? Because I had started to doubt myself so much because of those experiences. Was it all a sham? And so getting my confidence re-bolstered and rebuilt was a series of months, honestly, and talking to people and also like reading some of the notes I got when I left, because I did get some really, really powerful notes from people who said I had such a positive impact on them. I had to save those into a file to just reread on a bad day and remember, yes, you did have a a good impact. And then what happened was I really didn't know what I was going to do next. I applied for a job to lead a nonprofit. I got kind of far along that path. And then I realized, oh, I'd be out of the... what is the expression out of the fire and into the frying pan? Yes. It was a, it was a very dysfunctional <laughs> board and I'm like, Oh God, I don't, no, want no, we don't do that. <laughs> so, so I kind of realized slow down. Don't just mm-hmm. take a job or apply to a job. Cause you don't really know what you want. And then I met someone who was starting her own consulting agency and she wanted to create a, a group of women consultants who could do leadership consulting in Silicon Valley. And I thought, fabulous, this is perfect for me. And then she sent me a legal agreement to sign, a consulting agreement, and there was a paragraph in there about intellectual property that stated that anything I created while working with her, a workshop, a talk, anything I wrote, would be her intellectual property in perpetuity. And it was a moment. It was such a moment because I went, first of all, no way in hell. Second of all, you have something people want. And I realized it is my experience, it is my intellectual property, it is my thinking, it is all my wisdom from having been in business for 30 years and leadership for 20, and people want that, and people are going to pay you for that. And so Mm -hmm. that's kind of the path that finally, I would say about six months after I left my job, I went, I think I'm going to start my own thing. That's fantastic. And I think then what came out of that, uh, that part of your journey and rediscovery and, and recalibrating was your first or your second book, or both? <laughs> you, have two, you have two, kind of back to back. Like there, it was. A, it I want to be you. Yeah, no, and it's a, it's not. Uh, I would not recommend this path of having two books come out <laughs> within six months. But what happened was really interesting. I started working on an outline of the boldly inclusive leader when I was still working in tech because I knew I had a book in me, and I outlined it in early 2019. And then I had all this kind of bad stuff happen, and I put it aside. I felt not ready to write it. And then I started my business in 2020. And in 2021, I took a class, an online class. We were still in the pandemic, you know, and everything was virtual. And I took an online class in running psychological safety assessments. And in that class, I met this woman, Caroline Helbig, who's in Germany, in Bonn, Germany. And we completely hit it off. And we were saying, there's no practical material on how do we increase psychological safety in our teams as leaders. Why don't we collaborate on it? So we, I took this detour with Carolyn, and we wrote the Psychological Safety Playbook, which came out in February of this year. And then it was really interesting because when we finished the first draft of that, and it's a very short book by design, so it wasn't a ton of writing, but I had gotten sort of back in the groove of writing. Then I said, I am ready to write The Boldly Inclusive Leader. And I basically took six months out of the year I mean, I was still doing some work, but I did slow down my work and I, re- I cranked out that book. And then, and, you know, of course it goes through, takes over a year to come out afterwards with editorial and design and everything. But that's why I have two books that just came out 
uh, the Boldly Inclusive Leader just came out in August. The Psychological Safety Playbook came out in February. So not the recommended path, but that's the path. I was well, that's on. awesome. That's awesome. And both of them are very necessary. So let's 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 delve delve into boldly inclusive leaders. So we know that there's really, I think, the pandemic was kind of an opening of of awareness um, as a result of uh, George Floyd's murder and everyone sitting at home watching it. Had we not had the pandemic, I don't know that we would have had the international um, swell of of everything that we've had. Um, Not just anger, but, but we've got to do something different, right? And so I think from my lens, at least the word, you know, DEI became, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, and now we've managed to tack belonging on the end of it. But that, be, for me, it's always been around. But in in that particular space and time, it really pushed forward. So, so talk about like uh, your your book and and why it can't be and why this whole idea of in- inclusion and belonging cannot be put in the bottom drawer and closed and forgotten about. So true. And that's that's exactly where I'm coming from. And you're right. Like 2020 was the catalyst, that murder of George Floyd. Suddenly every company started to hire DEI people if they hadn't had them before. And even the company where I worked, where they did have DEI, they suddenly started taking it seriously. And that pushing that I was doing, where they were saying, slow down, stop, suddenly they were willing to do it. So that was the catalyst. We're actually seeing, as you know, some backlash now in 2023, and, and that's really disappointing to me. But let me answer your question. The thing is, is that too often we focus on the D, the diversity and mm-hmm. companies go about like, oh, now we need to hire black and Latinx. And, you know, right. we just need to right. be more, more diverse in our hiring or hire more diverse workforce. And they stop the work there. They, they stop with like our metrics. What are our demographics? And really, I believe inclusion and belonging need to be the focus before you even start to think about that. Or it's certainly simultaneously, because if you do manage to have a diverse workforce, how are they going to experience work if they don't feel safe to speak up, if they don't feel that they are welcome in all of their differences with their different background and their different way of thinking and their different life experience? If we don't really welcome that and embrace it, then what happens, and I've seen this in my many years in, in tech, is that people who feel that they are on the outside a little bit, like they're the they're the other, right? We think of mm-hmm. that we, we don't quite fit in, whether it's because you know, we're a black woman or we're the oldest person in the room or we're neurodivergent or English is not our first language or I'm an LBGTQ plus community member. All the ways we feel different. We basically, and I use this word again, we feel like we have to conform. We feel like we have to hide our differences and we don't share our perspectives because they're not particularly invited. So that's why I think leaders need to do the work. And that's what I write about in the Boldly Inclusive Leader that starts with themselves and how they show up as leaders and then goes out to how do we do, how do we work as a team? How do we work in meetings? How do we communicate with each other? How do we truly leverage and tap into 
the what I would say is the collective genius of a diverse team, but we can only do that if we're deliberate about how we behave with one another, how we listen to one another, how we respond to one another, what we reward and what we tolerate and what we ignore and what we punish. All of this as a leader, we need to get hyper aware of because otherwise we're going to we're going to be unconscious and all of our unconscious and implicit biases are going to rule our behavior. So a lot of people have been hearing about unconscious bias, implicit bias, diversity, equity, inclusion. A lot of leaders in particular have been hearing about this and they might have done a drive-by workshop on it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the challenge like how would you how would you address support encourage let's say if you're behind the scenes sitting with the male leader who's mm -hmm. entrenched in it's not an issue i don't i don't feel those ways i i i have a diverse team look see them right. can't you see i've got you know Hakeem over there and I got Amir here and, you know, we have Sally and, you know, so, right. Yes. So, and so we, we, we keep coming to that loggerhead. I mean, even with leadership development, like, you know, yes, you can, you can occupy a leadership role, but that does not make you a leader, right? That's right. There's, there's some internal things that you, one has to constantly work on. But if you had a, you were sitting in a, you know, behind the scenes in a room and you were, you were sharing with a leader or a business owner, a CEO, listen, John, Jack, this is why this is really important for, for, for you and your company, for you to do the work. What would you say to him? And I'm talking about the people who are, you know, who have the flavor of the month, if you will, on the, you know, and they're like, oh, I have, I have everybody. It's diverse but have done zero work. And so people feel excluded. Um, people leave. Like, what would, what would you, what would, what's the galvanizing conversation for someone to go, you know what, I think this really is important and it has to start with me. Yeah. It's such, it's such a challenge, honestly, because the person has to be willing to listen to people's real experiences. I feel like I can share all the data. Like there's so much data, right? And you know this data, data history, yeah. right? Data. And sometimes you need to start with the data. Often I find with especially um, people in engineering or in very scientific communities, they want to see the data about why is this important. But honestly, I think how I find connection really happens where people go, oh, maybe I do need to do something different, is to, to get some storytelling happening. And one of the ways I do that, like I do workshops with leaders and uh, I bring them into pairs generally. And one of the things I ask them to tell each other is a story of a time when they did not feel heard, seen, or respected, which is really the basis of inclusion, mm -hmm. right? Like, exactly. am I seen? Am I valued? Am I respected? Now, what's really interesting about this, I have done this exercise now with hundreds of people. And almost every time people say, wow, Right. I mean, just to hear someone else's story and to truly listen to it and have that visceral feeling of how awful that is for someone. And I've had a couple now I've had a couple of occasions with men, not always white men, by the way. I've had it with East Asian men, uh, South Asian men also who said, I've never had that experience. I've never had the experience of not being heard, seen or respected. 
And then I say, wow, that's pretty unusual because I've seen this. Like at some point in people's lives, they've generally had that. And then I say, is it okay if I share a story? And then I share one of my stories if they are not going to share with each other. And then they, in that moment, go, okay, now I get this. And in fact, one of them said, we need to do better to help women because that's, you know, they got it. So I feel like we have to start with hearing people's stories. And I encourage leaders to do listening tours where they really go out with either one-on-one or groups and they hear the truth. And, you know, I just, I just worked with an executive at a big tech company and she had gone around the world doing listening tours for the women's group, basically. And what she learned was, you know, some pretty bad behavior going on. And then we did a, we did, we actually did a big round table, a fireside chat about it where she shared the data. And then I gave some advice and there were, there were thousands of people who tuned into that men and women. So I think those are some of the things is we have to expose the truth. And a lot of that is really just human stories. That is how we connect, honestly. I love that. And I, you're absolutely correct. I think one of the one of the um, one of the tools of being human is storytelling. I think about yes. my grandmothers, my great-great-grandmothers, that storytelling was the way that information about who we are. And what our experience, that is, it was all oral. And so, so, and I think that the other thing is you were sharing that, that, that getting leaders to tell stories, A, is that you do kind of like I was doing with you earlier, you have to tap in to who you really are when you take the, the, the leadership label off, the role off, the conformity off, you start taking those things off and then it, it does humanize you. You talk a lot in your, the, at least the, the things that I've seen about your book about being more human, like, yes. right? Like, yes. and so story, our genuine story, our authentic story, like that does make us, make us more human, um, which I think is really powerful. And it, it sheds those masks that we all, that we all wear. Yeah. And I think that's so important. I really do. And I mean, I want every leader to show up as a human and to respect mm-hmm. the other humans around them as equally important, equally valuable. Yeah. So in the work that you do, can you just share a little bit about, we'll have your contact information, everything in the show notes. Can you share a little bit about like, what are your favorite, what are your favorite kinds of engagements, the things that you love to do? Obviously getting your book out there and and getting it into more leaders' hands and and uh, getting folks to read and talk about your book, um, the boldly inclusive leader, is super important. Uh, what are some other things? How are what are what kinds of things are you looking for forward to to getting engaged in? I think my favorite engagement, it usually starts with a talk or whether like a keynote or a fireside chat, just to like get some ideas out there. But I never like it to end there because I know like Mm -hmm. we don't change people's behavior with one talk, right? We know that. So what I really love in terms of engagements with organizations, bring me in, I'll do a talk, I'll do a workshop, and then let's do follow-up. Like maybe every month we do a session where I have like structured content I can bring in as conversation starters based on the book. And you as members of the teams can tell me your challenges and we can work through them together. That's the kind of work I want to do because I feel like that's when you can really influence change because it happens over time with commitment and continuous work. And I describe everything as a practice, right? We're just practicing and learning as we go. And with like anything that you practice, it takes time and repetition and making mistakes. And I like to be there to help have those conversations like, okay, we did this. It worked really well. And we're really struggling with this. 
And then we can work through some of that. So those are my favorite kinds of engagements. Awesome. Well, Minette, Norman, thank you so much for being on The Room where leaders talk. I'm glad that we got to delve into your journey, your leadership journey. I just want to thank you for not only the graciousness of your time, but also the gift of your story um, and the trailblazing that you have done and that you continue to do now um, with both of your books, The Boldly Inclusive Leader and The Psychological Playbook. So I'm excited to have you on the room and I look forward to continuing to watch your journey. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, it's Jenny. Thank you so much for joining me in this week's episode of The Room, a safe place where leaders come together to talk about the things that we don't often share out loud. If you enjoyed your time in The Room, please like or subscribe on your favorite platform and leave a review. And if you want to learn more about our important work with leaders, head over to the website, leaderstransform.com and continue to be connected to our community. Thank you again for listening and make sure you invite someone to next week's episode of The Room.